thank you, obviously, both uh, really on, on behalf of our family for all the, the tears and the prayers that you guys have prayed for our family and for my brother Scott and for his wife Liliana, their son Michael, over these past six weeks or so. Uh, I know most of you have already seen this, but uh, on Friday morning, a couple of days ago, Scott wrote this to our church, and I want to read it uh, for you now. Uh, Scott wrote, Good morning, North Avenue Church family. Yesterday, so that's Thanksgiving Day, Liliana went to heaven. She went to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. She saw the Lord Jesus and heard those wonderful words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you all for the thousands of prayers that have been made for her. Her faith was so strong. And then he said, I thought this was really good from Tim Challies. If you remember Tim Challies, the book we've given out uh, the past couple weeks, he lost his uh, 20-year-old son uh, two years ago, suddenly. Tim Challies wrote, quote, The Apostle Paul insisted that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is gain to be had in death, and it's the gain that comes when we are released from all that is evil and awakened to all that is good. I would not summon Nick back to this world if I could, that would be to rob him of the greatest of all gains and to force him to experience so much loss. And as you remember last Sunday, uh, Liliana had been studying just a few weeks before going into the hospital. She had been studying the opening questions of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'll remind you of what she had written on that, uh, on that board in their house. What is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is this, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The funeral for Liliana will be, Lord willing, in this very room uh, this next Saturday, December 3rd at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, You know, I would never have imagined when our church started, it was seven years ago, that our very first funeral of any member in our church would be be my sister-in-law. This would not have even been something I, I would have expected. And yet, Uh, In the midst of our grief, we trust that God is good, and He does all things well, even when we do not fully understand all of His reasoning. We also, just for those with young children, uh, we will not have regular child care available, but the plan is to have uh, an alternate space in the gym during the funeral. We we hope to have the funeral on the screen, on the TV screen in there, and we'll have some chairs out uh, for anyone who, who maybe has young children or, or wouldn't be able to be in this room for the service. So that'll be in the gym also at 10 o'clock. And you, you probably will want to get here somewhat early on that on Saturday morning. Um, after the funeral service is over, for those who would like to go uh, to, to the burial, it will be at um, about 25 minutes from here in Farmington Cemetery and Old Farmington Road in Watkinsville, about 25 minutes uh, from here. That will be at, following the service this Saturday morning, which begins at 10 o'clock. I'm going to read a long text right now, and it's a very appropriate text. I'm going to read the first 46 verses of John 11, and I hope this is of comfort to all of us as we contemplate Christ's power over death. And just just before I read it, let me state the obvious about this story, this true story. This is Jesus giving His final sign publicly in John's gospel. And remember, when He fed the 5,000 with bread… He then said, this is a sign that says, I am the bread of life. He took the immediate physical, tangible miracle and said, it has a deeper meaning. 
So here, the raising of Lazarus is pointing to the fact that at the last day, Jesus is the one who can speak to death and force death to give up the dead. And so only Jesus could defeat death. Let's, let's read this. John 11, verse 46 verses, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, to a, to a degree, we, we share in perhaps the confusion of Martha and Mary. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We understand their struggle to comprehend your absence in their moment of need, or at least your apparent absence. And yet, Lord, by the time the story comes to its end, Mary and Martha have no doubt about your goodness and your purposes and your sovereignty in the midst of their grief. They could see with their own eyes your purposes, which was your glory to be seen by many hundreds and hundreds of people and that many would trust in Christ because of this unquestionable miracle, this astonishing miracle, raising a man dead four days. Lord, we thank you that in your Son, the Lord Jesus, is resurrection life. He is the resurrection and the life, and that everyone who trusts in Him will never truly die, even if they die. That death will not get the last word, that death has been defeated by the cross of Christ, that there is no sting left in death for the believer. And Lord, we thank you that Liliana, on Thursday, around lunchtime on Thanksgiving Day, that she was enabled to enter into your immediate presence because of the righteousness of Christ that clothed her in the forgiveness of sins Jesus purchased for her on the cross. She was able to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Lord, we thank you for the incredible truth of the gospel. It is truly our only hope and it is our sufficient hope. So I pray now, God, as we sing, that we would sing in a way that would honor you with true faith and trust in your promises and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me back to John chapter 11 in your Bibles. John chapter 11.
This is our third week in John chapter 11. I've titled the sermon, Jesus Wept, and I have three points. For those who take notes, I'll just give you the, really quickly here so you can have an outline. Point number one is Jesus' anger, and that will be verses 28 to 34. Jesus' anger, verses 28 to 34. Point number two, Jesus' tears. Jesus' tears, that's verses 35 to 37. Verses 35 to 37. And finally, point number three, Jesus' purpose. Jesus' purpose, and it really involves the whole chapter, but in particular, verses 38 to 46. Jesus' purpose, verses 38 to 46. Let me just remind you of what has happened here. Jesus has this dear family who He is friends with, whom He loves, these three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We talked about them a few weeks ago, the snapshots we get of them, especially in Luke 10 and in other places in the Gospels. You get a little sense of who they were as individuals. And the one whom Jesus loved was ill. And I want to reread the beginning because I think it's a key to understanding the text. Let me reread the first six verses of our passage, John 11, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now just as a reminder, we'll come back to this, Lord willing, at the end of the sermon, but this is a very strange response of Jesus. He hears that someone he deeply loves, it's said over and over in this passage, Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Martha. He loves Mary. Mary pours the ointment on his feet in the next chapter. This is a a group that truly love each other. And when Jesus hears he's sick and the implication is, please come and do something, Jesus deliberately, because of his love, it says, stayed where he was two more days. And it's a little tricky, but if you, if you figure out where Jesus was, it was over 100 miles away, most likely. And so we're talking a multi-day walk to get to where Jesus needed to be. So Jesus waits until Lazarus has died, and then uh, he begins this multi-day journey to go see Lazarus. By the time he arrives, Lazarus has already been buried for four days. They probably buried Lazarus perhaps even on the very same day that he died. It was a quick uh, procedure in that climate and whatnot. Uh, he would probably be buried on the same day or at least close to the time of his death. One interesting point before we really get into these three points is when Jesus arrives, he first meets Martha who comes to meet him. Remember her opening line, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's interesting that a little later in the story when Mary comes to meet Jesus, have you noticed she says word for word the same thing? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's amazing that Jesus doesn't respond in a cookie-cutter fashion to both of them. He actually responds differently to these two individuals. And I think that shows you the Lord's care and concern for us as individuals. Jesus doesn't react in precisely the same way with the two sisters. Jesus 
here we see his anger. Let's look at point number one, Jesus' anger. Verses 28 to 34. Verse 28, when she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Let me just stop there for a moment. It's very clearly pointed out that Martha and Mary have this conversation in private. We know it's in private because it says so, but then also the others who are mourning with Mary, they don't even know why Mary's getting up to leave. It's that private. So Martha comes in, speaks one-on-one with her sister, Mary, and says, the teacher wants to speak with you. You should go see Jesus. And, her, and, and Mary leaps to her feet, goes very quickly to go see Jesus. The other mourners don't even know why she has gotten up. Uh, some pastors have pointed out that this is almost like a microcosm of how we should live our lives. We should go to people and say personally, privately, individually, listen, the Lord would like to meet with you and invite them to go meet with the Lord Jesus. I don't want to overly spiritualize the text, but the idea there being of privately speaking to someone and inviting them to Jesus and that person responding and going to, to meet Him. Today it would be through His Word and through prayer. Verse 30, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Let me just say that all different cultures handle grief differently and the expression of it. You know, I have to say our culture is a little bit of the odd man out in this regard. Uh, We tend to want to be more stoic in the way we respond. We kind of have the stiff upper lip mentality, don't want to necessarily be too visible or public in our display of sadness and grief. Uh, But certainly in this culture at this time, it would be thought crazy to suppress your grief. And so people would come uh, from, from Jerusalem, people came into town from Judea, and there would be many people present, and they would very openly uh, express their grief with, with, with at times loud wailing and mourning, and you would oftentimes have people come to play a dirge, a, a funeral song that would in, increase and enhance the sense of sadness, and there was no shame at all uh, in the time of grief or loss. And, and I just want to say this is no at all, our church has been nothing but wonderful in this, but I, I do want to say to Christians in our culture in particular… Not to you guys, but just kind of generally speaking, I think Christians are often uncomfortable with the topic of grief. I think there's this idea that to grieve is somehow less spiritual, not truly godly. I mean, we wouldn't say it, but there's this kind of suspicion of grief. That if, if you're just full-on sobbing or crying over the death of someone who, who, you, who you love, that maybe there's something wrong with you. And, and biblically, I want to say that that's, that's not the case. Of course, there is a sinful way to grieve for a lost loved one. We know that, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, I write this that you might not grieve as those who have no hope. There is a hopeless grieving that would be sinful. If, if, if we grieve for Liliana without any hope in her future resurrection, that is a, the sin of unbelief in our grieving, and it would be a, a grief of despair, and it would not honor the Lord. But Paul doesn't say, don't grieve. He says, don't grieve as those who have no hope. And Jesus will demonstrate in just a moment that weeping at a funeral is the most Christ-like thing imaginable because Christ Himself does it in just a moment. So please understand that that is not wrong to express our grief. God has made us as human beings. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, the psalmist said. He understands from being a human being Himself the pain of grief. 
But what about this anger that we see? Where, where, where do we see anger here in this passage? Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet. Remember Mary, almost every time you see her, where is she? She falls at Jesus' feet. I don't get over that. Right? In Luke 10, during that dinner when Martha is overworking and too anxious, where's Mary? She's sitting at Jesus' feet learning, and Jesus says she has chosen the better portion and it will not be taken away. You're going to see in the next chapter, we won't look at it today, but in the next chapter in verse 3, Mary, Jesus comes after raising her brother and she's thinking, I, I want to do something for the Lord, for what He's done for our family. What can I possibly do? And Mary thinks of that family heirloom, that priceless bottle of ointment made of pure nard, probably from India. This would have been worth a year's salary. And what does she do? Mary says, I've got to do something to honor the Lord for what He did for my brother. I'm going to take a family heirloom. I'm going to break it. This is crazy. Remember, Judas goes, what are you doing wasting all this money? Because he wanted to steal the money. Mary breaks the, 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 this, this uh, box of ointment and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. Mark and Matthew tell she also poured it on his head. She put all the details together. She poured it on his head and on his feet. And then she leans down and where is she? She's back at Jesus' feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And here, when her brother has died and been in the tomb four days, where does Mary want to be? She wants to be at Jesus' feet. See, when there's a time of celebration, after the raising of Lazarus, where does she want to be? She wants to be at Jesus' feet. She wants to worship Jesus. She wants to give Him everything she has. When it's a time of mourning, where does she want to be? The same place. She wants to be at Jesus' feet. See, the, the true believer will struggle but the true believer always wants to be there, no matter what's happening. On the happy days, you want to be at the feet of Jesus, right? And on the sad days, you want to be at the feet of Jesus. And Mary so beautifully models that for us here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I just have to say a word here. There is a pretty rare Greek word right there. In the ESV, it's translated deeply moved. I don't know what your translation may say. Let, let me just take a moment here to, to talk. I can't even pronounce the word, okay? I'm not even going to try to pronounce this Greek word. It's a crazy Greek word. But th this Greek word is used a few times in the New Testament, maybe three or four times. And it's used in some extra-biblical, non-biblical Greek around the same time. Let me, let me just try to tell you what this word means. It's a little bit hard to convey, actually. It's usually used in the context of anger or rebuke. When Jesus used it, He sternly warned them with a rebuke. The word is used in another gospel. I think the most fascinating use of this word is in non-biblical Greek. It's used of a horse that is snorting with anger. It's literally referring to the snorting of an animal in anger in extra-biblical Greek. Most translators, I don't know if they are necessarily timid about going all the way to translating it like the ESV is a footnote that says indignant. That's pretty good. Indignant. Uh, some translations go even further. Uh, the idea of, of uh, along the, I think one person translated enraged. It's a, it's a very aggressive word for anger. It goes beyond being moved and it's, 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 it's moved with anger. And the word is used again in verse 38. 
Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So the, the question is, why is Jesus angry? And there are all kinds of ways of answering this. But I think it's a combination of things. Tell me what you think. You can measure this against what the text says. I think Jesus is angry at a number of things. Let me read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, Between indignation at the powers of evil, so Jesus is mad at the powers of evil that are obvious here, he's indignation at the powers of evil and indignation at grief for the family who had been bereaved by death, so he's angry at death and what it does, sorrow over those who stood by in unbelief, because there's people there who don't believe even in this moment, so he could be angry at the unbelief present, and a distressing realization in this humanity of the effects of sin. He just sees it right in front of him. The Lord's heart was evidently in a great storm. Instead of the thunder of threatening coming from Jesus and the lightning of a curse coming down on the unbelief that's somewhat present, all that was perceptible of that inward tempest was a shower of tears. For Jesus wept. A hurricane rushed through his spirit, and all the forces of his soul were disturbed. He shuddered at the sight of what was about to be set before him. He was thrilled from head to foot with emotion. Yet the result of the storm was not a word of terror, nor a glance of judgment, but simply a blessed shower of tears. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So he is angry. I think he's angry at sin. He's angry at the effects of sin and death. He's angry for the sorrow and all that, it, that this creates in the world. It's almost like he sees in his humanity a microcosm of all the effects of sin and death in the, illustrated in this one family. And he is angry at sin and death. He's angry at Satan. He's angry at, the, at, at all these things. And he's also sorrowing with this family. Point number two. Verses 35 to 37, Jesus' tears. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, it has often been remarked that in our English Bible, the shortest verse is John eleven thirty-five. 35, uh, Jesus wept. Someone said, we can correct the, the people who put the verses in. Many times they get it wrong, right? We've seen a lot of places. Why is the verse here? This doesn't make any sense why the person put the verse division here. But Spurgeon said, oh, we can, we can happily forgive some of, the, some of the incorrect places that verse divisions were placed in the Bible hundreds of years ago for the fact that whoever did this here got this one just right. Leaving verse 35 as these two words in English, Jesus wept as its own verse is exactly right. Spurgeon writes this, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the Word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the most attentive consideration. There's a world of theology in this short verse. Let me just say two things we learn about Jesus here. We see on full display His divinity and His humanity in this passage, do we not? Who else can say, four days after a funeral and burial, your brother will rise again? 
Oh, Jesus, I know He will rise again on the last day at the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who, who can say that? Who can say, not God will rise, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? No one but the divine can say that. Jesus is claiming to be equal with God the Father. He is claiming to be resurrection life Himself. He is the one who will raise the dead at the sound of His voice. John 5 says, The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is not, a, this is not mythology. Jesus, the historical man who lived 2,000 years ago, is going to come back to this world. And He's going to speak a word at the last trumpet and the dead in Christ will be raised... And those who do not know Christ will be raised. And there will be an eternal destiny fixed before us. Those who have trusted Christ in His finished work will be everlastingly saved and satisfied in the person of Christ forever. And those who have just said, I don't really care about the Jesus stuff. I got other stuff to do with my life, thank you very much. That is totally uninteresting to me. They will receive the due penalty for the sins that they have committed in their lives here in this world. This is not a myth this is history, and it's going to break forth one day with more reality than you can possibly dream. Some people will be stunned. I can't believe what I learned growing up from my grandmother or my parents or in my Sunday school class was actually true. In history, Jesus will return, the same Jesus who is here in this text today. He will come back, and yet we see His humanity on full display, sinless humanity, but it is true humanity. I mean, we're, we're going to be thinking about Christmas soon. He was, the Word became flesh. He took on flesh. He added to His eternal person a true human nature. And He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb. And He was born without sin apart from the fall of Adam. He was not born in Adam because of that virgin birth. And here we see Jesus in His humanity. We, we, we see His humanity, don't we, in the Gospels? Jesus stopped at Jacob's well at about the sixth hour, noon, wearied as He was from His journey. Wearied. We see Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee in the storm, exhausted from endless, tireless ministry to others in need. And as the waves crash and splash about the boat... And the seasoned fishermen are scared for their lives. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the boat because He was truly human. He was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows how to minister to us because He Himself has been where we've been. I love the quote from Spurgeon. He said, through every dark room, the Master has gone before us. Through every dark room, the Master has gone before us, including death. He has been there. He knows what it is like to face death in His humanity. He knows what it is like to die. And let me say, His death was far worse than the death any believer will ever experience because He had the Father's smile turned away from Him as He bore our sin on the cross. He is able to strengthen us when we are weak because He knows he knows what it is like. We see His humanity on full display. Jesus 
wept. He was unashamed to weep at this gravesign. Someone said, here he was, the resurrection in flesh, meeting death face to face with this tomb. And he weeps. Now, Jesus knew that in the next half hour, he was going to turn this funeral into a party. He was going to turn everything around in the next half hour. He knew that, and yet that did not minimize the tears. We we need to hear this. Jesus in no way contradicts the promises of God by weeping at his friend's graveside. That's not a contradiction. That's being human while we trust God. There is real grief. There is real pain. That does not minimize the truth that God is working this for our good. That's our hope. That's everything we've got is, yes, of course, God is working this for our good. We trust that. We believe that. That does not minimize the tears. It keeps us with hope. It keeps us with hope in the midst of our tears, but it doesn't alleviate all tears. Jesus wept. He wept. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? And yet, look, his tears are misunderstood. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Spurgeon writes this, so first, Jesus wept to show he was truly man. Secondly, Jesus wept because he was not ashamed of his human weakness, but allowed himself to reveal the fact that he was, in this point also, made like unto his brethren except without sin. Thirdly, Jesus wept, and therein He is our comforter. What what, what God is there who knows what it is like to experience grief, to be called a man of sorrows? we, We can draw near to Him because He is there to comfort us in our affliction. What better comfort could there be than the tears of Jesus? Jesus wept. And lastly... Spurgeon says, through his tears, he is our example. Just don't turn to these, just read some verses. Genesis 50, Joseph went up to bury his father, Jacob. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, they lamented there a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and... Weep with those who weep. That's a command, and I'm so thankful for a church that obeys this command. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member of a local body of Christ, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How have we seen that in this church? One member is suffering, and yet all suffer together. Hebrews 13.3, remember those believers who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body, since you also have a body. Let's move to point number three, Jesus' purpose, verses 38 to 46. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, indignant again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see 
the glory of God. Let me just stop there. For those who are not believers, this is not going to make sense, what I'm about to say. If we are a believer, it's, going to, it's still a struggle, but I think it can make sense. I'm borrowing this from other people in a sense, but I'm sort of adapting it myself. I think it's clear in this passage. We're getting a, a definition of love, and it, it's such a strange definition of love. If, if someone's not a Christian, it, it may sound very strange. Now, let's, let's refresh you real quick. Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. Therefore, when he heard he was ill, he stayed where he was and allowed Lazarus to go through death and to allow them to grieve for four full days before he shows up. Why would he put him... Why would Jesus put the people he loves through such agonizing pain? And it says he did it because he loved them. He even says this shocking statement back, if you look real quick, in verse 14. This is astonishing. Look at, look at 11, 14. Then Jesus told them, the disciples, plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. That's astonishing. It can't, that, that cannot mean Jesus doesn't care, right? It cannot mean that. He loves them. He weeps at the tomb. He's going to raise him. That verse cannot mean he doesn't care. But he says, for your sake, I was glad I wasn't there to heal him. I, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. And then if you look at verse 40 again, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So in Jesus' mind, Love is enabling others, even at great cost, to see God's glory in Christ by faith. That's at the heart of this chapter. Love is enabling others, even at great cost, to see God's glory in Christ by faith. That's love. So Jesus says, this is going to be very painful, but I am going to sovereignly choose to let this happen. Not because I'm rejoicing in the pain, I'm weeping with you in the pain, but because I have a purpose, and my purpose is that God's glory would be displayed through me, and that many people would have eyes of faith given to them to see God's glory in me as I raise the dead. And they go, he really is the resurrection and the life. I trust him. I believe him. I am forgiven. I'm saved. So Jesus says, I'm willing to undergo immense pain for people I love. I'm going to allow them to go through something very grievous. I'm going to enter into the grief with them. But my purpose is not ultimately death. My purpose is the glory of God that the Son of Man would be glorified through this event. And you're about to see in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what? Believed in him. Ultimately, love is about doing whatever it costs to have people's eyes opened to see the glory of God in Christ and to be satisfied by that, to be forgiven by that, to exult in that, that's the ultimate act of love, even if there is pain in the process. Look with me here back at verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice so that everyone could hear, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I'm going to move to a conclusion here. Just a message I got from a high school friend of mine. Haven't spoken to him in many years, eight or ten years probably. His name is Josh. We were in school together for, I don't know, eight or so years. Texted me. He said, hey, Mark, I'm very sorry for the pain and sadness y'all are going through. I'm praying for all of your family, Scott, and he and Liliana's son. The Lord has certainly been honored and glorified by Liliana's life and her entrance into his kingdom. Scott's words and his grief are creating pounding hearts for Jesus, and I can only imagine how the Lord is going to turn those hearts to him. Love you. Let me read here from something I read in March from Randy Alcorn when his wife uh, passed away. Here's what Randy Alcorn wrote after his wife had passed away. Nancy is with Jesus. I'm so happy for her, sad for us. But the happiness for her triumphs over the sadness. Grieving is ahead, and it will be hard. But these last years, and especially this last month, have given us a head start on the grieving process. I'm so proud of my wife and her, for her dependence on Jesus and her absolute trust in the sovereign plan and love of God. Nancy is and always will be an inspiration to me. I am with family and friends now thanking God for His grace and the promises of Jesus that we will live with Him forever in a world without the curse, and He will wipe away all the tears and all the reasons for the tears. All God's children really will live happily ever after. This is not a fairy tale. It is the blood-bought promise of Jesus. What a great and kind God He is. As of a few hours ago, Nancy now lives where she sees this firsthand, in the place where joy truly is the air she breathes. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you so much for all your prayers. Some of you, for four years of praying consistently for Nancy since she first was diagnosed, my heart is full of gratitude to you. Don't feel your prayers were not answered. Many of them were, and many others were answered in a better way than we could ever ask. Overwhelmed with gratitude to the one full of grace and truth. Let me say, if anyone is not a believer who's either watching this online or listening here in this room, my guess is you don't think much about death and you often put the topic off because it is so unsettling to think long and hard about your own death. I want to ask you, what is it that you're relying on to get you through death? What, what, what are you relying on? What is your hope in not just life but in death? Who else has the answer to this ultimate question other than the Lord Jesus Himself, who died and rose and defeated death so that one day for the believer, death itself will die? Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, just as Scott said, that he has learned more than ever in his life, the truth of the words Paul spoke when he said he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Lord, we would ask that Liliana's life, which already has and is having, 
an impact on so many would, would have an increasing impact in the days and months to come. Lord, we would ask that her life would be, her story would be heard by many, shared by many, that believers would be profoundly encouraged by the faithfulness you worked in her so that she was able to say things like you were in control as she was approaching what seems to us, humanly speaking, as a premature death. But I pray for unbelievers who have and will hear this story, nominal Christians who are just sort of apathetic about their faith as well, that you would awaken them the shortness and brevity and uncertainty of life. Just a short time ago, we just had no idea what was to happen. Lord, show us how short this life is. Show us how urgent it is to prepare for eternity. And thank you, Lord, that you offer free of charge your Son who is the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in Him, even if we die, yet we will live. And those who live and believe in you will never ultimately die. We thank you for that hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to take an extra minute here at the end. I want to read an excerpt from Tim Challey's book about the, the, the death of his son at 20 years old two years ago. This is a brief, two, it's, it's a brief section. Um, he calls this his manifesto. I want to read this before we bow together. By faith, I will accept Nick's death as God's will. And by faith, accept that God's will is always good. By faith, I will be at peace with providence, and by faith, at peace with its every decree. By faith, I will praise God in the taking as I did in the giving, and by faith, receive from His hand this sorrow as I have so many joys. I will grieve but not grumble, mourn but not murmur, weep but not whine. Though I will be scarred by Nick's death, I will not be defined by it. Though it will always be part of my story, it will never become my identity. I will be forever thankful that God gave me a son and never resentful that He called him home. My joy in having loved Nick will be greater than my grief in having lost him. I will not waver in my faith, nor abandon my hope, nor revoke my love. I will not charge God with wrong. I will receive this trial as a responsibility to steward, not a punishment to endure. I will look for God's smile in it rather than His frown, listen for His words of blessing rather than His voice of rebuke. This sorrow will not make me angry or bitter, nor cause me to act out in rebellion or indignation. Rather, it will make me kinder and gentler, more patient and loving, more compassionate and sympathetic. It will loose my heart from the things of earth and fix it on the things of heaven. The loss of my son will make me more like God's son my sorrow like the man of sorrows. I will continue to love God and trust Him, continue to pursue God and enjoy Him, continue to worship God and boast of His many mercies. I will look with longing to the day of Christ's return and with expectation to the day of resurrection. I will remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I will forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead always pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I will lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before me, looking always to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of my faith. I will remain faithful until I have fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith. I will die as I have lived, a follower of Jesus Christ. Then by grace, I will go to be with Jesus and go to be with Nick. This is my manifesto. Let's bow our heads together. Reading from 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ, that you will not leave us as orphans, that you will come to us. Lord, I pray that we could truly put our hope fully in the grace to be given us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes in glory. I pray we would not fix our eyes on the things of this world, but we would fix our eyes on what is eternal. He would help us to reevaluate maybe some of our commitments, some of the things that we spend so much time on in our life. Maybe some of these things should be less important and other things more important. God, please do surgery on our heart. Reveal things that need to change, areas we need to repent, areas we need to grow. God, help us to learn lessons from all that is happening and all that will happen. Help us to live in accord with these truths in your word. And God, we thank you for the hope in Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.